something to note, all of the groups covered on this show operate in secret. The details included in this episode are based on extensive research, but cannot ultimately be 100% verified except by society members themselves. This episode features discussions of racism, violence, police brutality, and murder. Discretion is advised, especially for listeners under 13. On December 9, 2013, United States Attorney Andre Barat unsealed five criminal cases, four federal indictments, and one criminal complaint against members of the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. These 18 officials had been indicted on allegations of rampant abuse and misconduct in LA County jails. These first five unsealed cases were only the tip of the iceberg. Barat said, our investigation also found that these incidents did not take place in a vacuum. In fact, they demonstrated behavior that had become institutionalized. Some members of the sheriff's department considered themselves to be above the law. Over the past few years, the topic of police brutality and corruption has become mainstream and divisive, dominating news cycles and political campaigns. So much so that it often feels like the dialogue isn't about policing at all. Rather, it's a dog whistle for warring political parties. There are many factors that contribute to the animosity between communities of color and the officers who police them. In the next five episodes, we'll be shining a light on one pervasive problem in the world's largest sheriff's department. Since 1971, the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department has played host to violent, deputy-run gangs operating out of LASD stations. For decades, the Los Angeles Police Department has been a lightning rod for public controversies and bad press. They're at the heart of calls for police reform. But all the while, the LASD has been quietly humming away in the background, policing nearly 5,000 square miles of unincorporated cities scattered around LA County. Rather than protecting the residents of these areas, the Sheriff's Department created their own gangs to terrorize the communities they serve. It almost seems impossible, but there are decades worth of documentation. And every time one gang is exposed, another seems to take its place. I'm Alastair Murden. Usually I host Kingpins, where we cover the rise and fall of underworld figures in organized crime. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. I host Secret Societies, another Spotify original from Parcast, exploring mysterious organizations from around the world. For the next five weeks, our two shows are teaming up to bring you the story about deadly gangs that are also secret societies and also operate out of the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. Since 1971, the LASD has been plagued by gang activity within its own ranks. As is the case with every story we bring you, this activity has been investigated, corroborated, and in certain cases, prosecuted. However, we should note that since these groups operate in secret, some details are difficult to verify. 
By exploring the history of policing in Los Angeles, we can better understand the city's current landscape. Today, we're starting with the murky origins of the LASD's first deputy gang, the Little Devils. First appearing in the early 1970s, they set the precedent for a revolving door of white supremacist gangs within the LASD, many of which still exist today. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. In the 1960s and 70s, L.A. looked oddly similar to what it is today. Four-lane boulevards lined with boxy concrete buildings and towering palm trees. The downtown area was spotted with greasy spoons and hole-in-the-wall bars that are now institutions. But culturally, the energy was different. Author David Kukoff described the 70s as the last decade in which Los Angeles bore some resemblance to the frontier town it had once been. The 60s ushered in a wave of social change and hedonism that was rooted in defiance, against the government, against convention, and against law and order. Especially after the Manson murders in 1969, there was an air of lawlessness in L.A. that some found alarming, but many others found alluring and exciting. There's an evergreen nostalgia for the carefree, good vibes attitude of late 1960s L.A., but this free love culture was largely a white experience. On the outskirts of Hollywood, black and Latinx communities lived markedly different lives. Simmering beneath the veneer of the 60s was a hotbed of socio-political unrest that was nearing a breaking point. On the other side of the 101 sat East Los Angeles, a sprawling Mexican-American barrio with a proud history. The neighborhood managed to thrive for nearly a hundred years, despite gentrification slowly encroaching on its borders. But by the late 60s, things had changed. East LA was a low-income neighborhood with underfunded schools and among the highest dropout rates in the country, 44% in 1968. This was especially important because, at the time, college was one of the only ways to avoid being drafted to Vietnam. For the 18-year-olds growing up in East LA, it wasn't a question of if you were going overseas, but when. And tragically, Latino men sent to Vietnam largely returned in body bags. 
they were killed at a rate that was highly disproportionate to their white counterparts, it seemed like they were being used as cannon fodder, and East LA sent more than their fair share of sons to die. Many of the barrio's residents felt little control over their future, a feeling that only intensified after a sucker-punch piece of legislation in 1961. 3,000 homes in East LA were displaced so that the I-5 and I-10 freeways could be built in the middle of what was once a vibrant neighborhood. This was confirmation of a larger problem. Most Los Angelinos were unaware of or unconcerned with the problems facing the barrio. Outside of East LA, media coverage made the neighborhood look like a dangerous, run-down gangster paradise. Many elderly residents of East LA remember what it was like in those days. Policing by the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department was brutal, excessive force was common, and the void of opportunity made it impossible to escape the confines of poverty. There was no support for the local schools, no action from local politicians, and eventually, the teenagers of East LA got tired of waiting. On March 5, 1968, hundreds of Mexican-American students staged a walkout at their rundown schools, protesting against racist teachers, apathy among school administrators, and a lack of college preparatory training. A week later, the protests had ballooned to about 22,000 students. That was when the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department got involved. But why the sheriffs and not the LAPD? Across LA County, there are dozens of small, unincorporated cities, like West Hollywood and Compton, that aren't within LAPD's jurisdiction. Instead of forming their own police force, these small cities signed a general law enforcement contract with the LASD. Currently, 42 cities and 141 unincorporated communities have contracts with the LASD, making it the largest sheriff's department in the world. At the time of the walkouts, the department employed about 7,000 deputies. And because of the nature of their contracts, LASD operates like a typical police department. This is why, when Angelinos talk about the police, they're often referencing both the LASD and the LAPD, which carry out similar functions in different parts of town. And like the LAPD, deputies have a reputation for showing up to peaceful protests overdressed. When they pulled up to the student-led demonstration in March 1968, they arrived in riot gear. The deputies ordered the stunned students back to class, but the kids of East LA were tired of being intimidated and pushed around. Several students started launching bottles of soda at the deputies. Then, all hell broke loose. Deputies went after the students with batons, arresting several. The violent clash was brief, but brutal. Although it did little to stop the walkout, the protests went on for several more days, with each one broken up by the LASD. Surprisingly, the protests worked. On the 10th day, an emergency school council meeting gave voice to many of the students' demands, most of which centered around better education. The meeting spurred fundamental change in the East LA school system. However, it also served as a tipping point for racial tensions in the neighborhood. 
The walkouts in many ways catalyzed the Chicano movement, an expression of cultural pride and civil justice in East LA. Activist Cesar Chavez was already mobilizing the Mexican-American community through his work with the Agricultural Workers' Organizing Committee, or AWOC. But the walkouts brought young Chicanos into the fold, and as the movement grew, the community's policing grew more brutal. Street gangs had always been a problem in East Los Angeles, dating back to 1935. But as the Chicano movement grew, the sheriff's department became less discriminate in arresting what they thought were gang members. Anyone could be beaten and arrested if they looked at a deputy wrong. This kind of aggressive policing came to a head in 1970 at the National Chicano Moratorium March. On the morning of August 29th, between 20 and 30,000 demonstrators collected in Laguna Park, now the Reuben F. Salazar Park in East LA, peacefully protesting the Vietnam War. Unprompted, the LASD descended, showering the crowd with tear gas. They beat protesters with batons before arresting them. A building was set on fire. Over 150 peaceful protesters were arrested and four were left dead. When pressed about their motives, the LASD provided no reasonable explanation. Instead, they called the protesters communists. For the record, they weren't. To many citizens across Los Angeles, the Laguna Park riot felt senseless, a culmination of the excessive force and mass arrests that had become commonplace in East LA. After the riot, the crackdown on the Chicano movement grew so intense that the movement fizzled out. It may sound like the LASD was acting overtly racist, and there was reason for that. By the time of the Laguna Park riot, a group of deputies within the East LA Sheriff's Station had formed a secret society called the Little Devils. The members were easily recognizable by the red devils tattooed on their left calves. It was a white supremacist brotherhood operating out of the station. They saw themselves as an island of law and order in a sea of violence and squalor. And the people they were paid to protect became enemy number one. Coming up, we'll dive into the evolution of deputy gangs in the LASD. Hi listeners, I'm thrilled to tell you about a new Spotify original from Parcast that I think you'll really enjoy. It's called Our Love Story. Every Tuesday, Our Love Story celebrates the ups, downs and pivotal moments that turn complete strangers into perfect pairs. Each episode offers an intimate glimpse inside a real-life romance, with couples recounting the highlights and hardships that define their love. Whether it's a chance encounter, a former friendship, or even a former enemy, our love story proves that love can begin and blossom in the most unexpected ways. Ready to hear more? Follow Our Love Story free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now, back to the story. By 1971, members of the East LA Sheriff Station had formed what they considered a secret society, the Little Devils. They were identified by the small red devil tattooed on each of the members' left calves. Verified stories of the Little Devils are scattered, but there's no question about the gang's existence. This activity has been written about extensively by the LA Times and in a report from Loyola Law School. The Little Devils are considered the first deputy gang in the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. They've been recognized as gangs by county judges and the media because the deputies involved acted like members of any street gang. They had gang signs, initiation ceremonies, hazing rituals, and an official logo. Around the time the gang was formed, the station adopted the Fort Apache seal. The logo is thought to have been created by members of the Little Devils and remains the official seal of the entire station. Fort Apache was a 1948 Western movie about an isolated U.S. Army post in Apache territory. Henry Fonda stars as a racist commander obsessed with subduing the local natives. The commander is intentionally portrayed as ignorant and incompetent, and by the end of the film, his disastrous crusade against the Apache tribe leaves him and most of his men dead. But members of the Little Devils apparently missed the subtext and saw the film as an instruction manual for how to treat their local community. According to residents of East LA, their attitude seemed to be that any arrest was a good arrest because it got a young gangbanger off the street. It didn't matter whether that person was responsible for the given crime or whether they were actually a gangbanger in the first place. As one resident put it, the motto seemed to be, arrest whoever you can and figure it out later. LASD management didn't learn of the Little Devil's existence until 1973 while investigating misconduct by two deputies who happened to be members. The LA County Sheriff at the time, Peter J. Pitches, launched an extensive investigation into the deputy gang. The captain in charge, R.D. Campbell, ultimately found that 47 deputies at the station were involved. However, there's no record of whether there was any disciplinary action taken against them. Sheriff Pitches was known for taking a hard stance on inter-office discipline, but he also worked hard to keep any documentation of the misconduct from seeing the light of day. He even refused to comply with subpoenas for information, which eventually landed him in front of the California Supreme Court. To this day, these deputies' personnel files are confidential, making it nearly impossible to identify who was involved in the Little Devils and what kind of discipline they might have received. But someone at the East LA Sheriff's Station seemed to take the problem seriously enough that the Little Devils died off by the 1980s. But the spirit of their gang persisted. In fact, 
This lone ranger mentality seemed to take root across the entire department. By the time the Little Devils ceased to exist, a new deputy gang had sprung up across town. In 1977, a sheriff's station opened in Linwood, a city in L.A. County just nine miles south of East L.A., and almost immediately, a deputy gang began to form. By 1980, they were calling themselves the Linwood Vikings. They seemed to have identified themselves with ankle tattoos of Vikings, blonde-haired, blue-eyed marauders from the north. Like the Little Devils before them, the Vikings policed a low-income neighborhood of color. Stations in these areas were tersely referred to as ghetto stations, in testimony from a former member of the group. And like the Little Devils, the Vikings policed aggressively. It quickly became clear to the residents of Linwood that the Vikings were not their protectors. They were an invading force. To build clout and camaraderie, the Vikings presented themselves as an elite group, inviting only the most talented and committed deputies to join their ranks. That isn't to say the best deputies. Loyalty was valued over LASD policy. Many of the gang's members were linked to officer-involved shootings, excessive force, unconstitutional searches, perjury, and general misconduct. If a Viking shot someone, they earned the right to tattoo the numbers 998 on their ankles, the code for an officer-involved shooting. Taking a civilian life was reportedly considered a celebrated rite of passage. Vikings were also known to use gang-specific slang, tag buildings with their graffiti, and throw hand signals, an L for Linwood. Their actions were no different from the street gangs they were policing. But because they technically enforced the law, the Vikings seemed to feel above it. At least, that was the attitude around the station when 28-year-old Paul Tanaka was transferred there in 1987. Even though he was Japanese-American, Tanaka was soon considered one of the boys, and he became one of the few people of color initiated into the Vikings. A few months later, Tanaka would learn what it meant to be protected by that brotherhood. In March 1988, he and four other deputies found themselves in a 15-mile car chase from Compton to Long Beach. They were hot on the trail of 21-year-old Hong Pyo Lee, who fled police after running a stop sign. Even though the deputies chased Lee down the freeway, he never exceeded 55 miles per hour. Given that it was 2.30 in the morning, it wasn't the most dangerous car chase on record. But you would never guess that from the way the deputies responded. The chase ended in an industrial area of Long Beach. Lee's car screeched to a halt as three LASD cars pulled up behind him. Tanaka and the other four deputies jumped out of their cars, guns drawn. A Long Beach PD patrol car pulled up behind them to offer assistance, and a sheriff's helicopter circled overhead. Deputy John Chapman approached Lee's car, instructing him to get out with his hands raised. Instead, Lee threw the car into reverse. According to reports filed by all five deputies, Lee sped backwards. Chapman had to jump out of the way to avoid being hit. Tanaka and his colleagues fired their weapons, unloading 15 rounds into the car. Eight of the bullets hit Lee, 
killing him. After reviewing the deputies' reports, LASD homicide investigators and the district attorney's office cleared Tanaka and his compatriots of any wrongdoing. However, there was a problem. There were several contradictions between the deputies' stories and the reports filed by the two Long Beach police officers who had been on the scene that night. One officer said that he never saw Lee try to back his car into any of the deputies. Instead, Lee had slowly put his car in reverse and only began driving away after the shooting began. After the shooting, the officer said he turned to his partner and said, we just observed the sheriffs execute somebody. There was more about the incident that didn't make sense. When Lee's car was recovered, it was crashed into a fence 120 feet from where the shooting allegedly took place. And there was a bruising on Lee's face, as though he'd been beaten. The inconsistencies enraged the Korean-American community within Linwood and across Los Angeles. Lee's family sued the LASD for over $5 million. They called the killing an execution, brutal and unnecessary. They alleged that the sheriff's investigation was sloppy at best, but more than likely a cover-up. Evidence showed that the sheriff's investigators did not follow protocol when questioning the officers. In fact, all five deputies were left alone together in the same room for 10 hours. Lee's family alleged that this gave them plenty of time to coordinate their testimonies and make sure the story was airtight. In 1990, the Lees settled with the LASD for $999,999, a considerable sum, but far below the $5.7 million they'd asked for. Apparently, the LA County Sheriff at the time, Sherman Block, was enraged by the settlement, not because a man was dead, but because of how much it cost the department and the bad press it brought. Meanwhile, none of the deputies involved were held accountable. In fact, not only did they remain on duty, but they moved upward. Paul Tanaka was promoted to lieutenant a year later. As lieutenant, Tanaka became the Vikings' greatest champion, reportedly protecting the deputy gang from other supervisors within the department, even as many of his fellow members were named in a massive lawsuit, one that accused the department of racially motivated hate crimes. In 1990, over 75 residents of Linwood filed a class action lawsuit against the LASD, alleging that the department was aware of the Vikings' racially motivated violence against the community and tolerated the behavior. The suit claimed that Viking members had shot, killed, beat, racially profiled, and illegally searched Black and Latinx people solely to terrorize the community. The lawsuit brought media attention to the Linwood Vikings for the first time. An investigation found that not only had the Vikings terrorized the community, they had also terrorized any supervisor who tried to bring them under control. One account claimed that a Viking shot a dog and tied it beneath his commander's car. Another smeared human feces on a supervisor's car engine. 
Within the station itself, investigators found a map of Linwood in the shape of Africa, racist cartoons of black men, and a clumsily made plane ticket to Africa hanging on the wall. All of this evidence was brought to court, and the Vikings had little way to defend themselves. During the court proceedings, a reporter asked Sheriff Block if his deputies and the Vikings were any different from street gangs. Block defended them, saying, the fact that a group of people with a particular assignment band together in a sort of brotherhood could be a very positive thing. But the district court disagreed. In his ruling, U.S. District Judge Terry J. Hatter wrote, Many of the incidents which brought about this motion involved a group of Linwood area deputies who are members of a neo-Nazi white supremacist gang, the Vikings, which exists with the knowledge of departmental policymakers. The LASD eventually paid out $7.5 million to the people of Linwood and were ordered to spend another $1.5 million on mandatory training. Or, because the Sheriff's Department is funded by taxpayers, it might be more accurate to say that the people of LA County paid out $9 million while the deputies themselves walked away relatively scot-free. Despite the multi-million dollar settlement and public scrutiny, the LASD did nothing to curb the Vikings' influence. If anything, they thrived. A year later, in 1992, L.A. County Judge James Colts published a separate report on the excessive use of force by the LASD. The report concluded that some deputies appeared to have engaged in behavior that is brutal and intolerable and is typically associated with street gangs. But despite the overwhelming evidence, Sheriff Block refused to investigate or even admit the deputy gangs were real. However, when Deputy Mike Osborne came to Linwood as a trainee in 1994, it was clear to him that the Vikings ruled the station. Osborne referred to the Vikings as a caste system. Those at the top were white and male, the veterans on the force. They were known for routinely using racist and sexist slurs. They were also the ones you needed to impress if you wanted your career to go places. Of course, that also meant being initiated into the Vikings yourself. And once you were in, Osborne told the LA Times, you were expected to be one of the boys. You bought into the code of silence that protected every member of the gang. You didn't report illegal activity carried out by a fellow deputy. You saw nothing. Even if you weren't a Viking, you were expected to follow their rules. Osborne's wife, fellow deputy Aurora Mayado, broke that code of silence in 1996 after witnessing her training officer, a Viking, fabricate evidence against black and Latino civilians. She also saw him destroy evidence and falsify police reports, a federal offense. Jones was arraigned in March 1996 on felony charges and the identity of his whistleblower got around the station fast. That same month, someone shot at Osborne and Mayado's home in the dead of night, while their children were asleep in their bedrooms. Though she can't prove it, Mayado is convinced the shooter was a member of the Vikings, but neither she nor Osborne knew who to turn to. After all, they were the police. Coming up, 
we'll look at the repercussions of the Vikings' unchecked criminal behavior. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Now, back to the story. The Linwood Vikings were first brought to light in 1990 as part of a class action lawsuit filed against the LASD. It was clear to the U.S. District Judge overseeing the complaint that the deputy gang operating at the Linwood Sheriff Station was not a social clique, as Sheriff Block had called it, but a gang of neo-Nazis. They terrorized the community and were more concerned with putting people away than doing good police work. An attitude that has put many innocent people behind bars. On Friday, January 18, 1991, 41-year-old Donald Sarpy stepped onto the front steps of his home in Linwood, California. His teenage son and a few friends were talking loudly in the front yard, and Sarpy asked them to quiet down and come inside. As he walked outside, a car crept down the street. As it passed, someone leaned out the passenger side window and fired a single bullet into Sarpy's chest. The three people in the car yelled gang slogans before peeling out. Donald Sarpy died in the hospital later that evening. The case was investigated by Detective Craig Deitch, a member of the Vikings. Sarpy's son and his four friends were questioned about what they had seen, but their initial statements were all over the map. The teenagers couldn't agree on the color of the car that drove by, calling it tan, beige, orange, even black. They also weren't sure of how many people were in the car, two, maybe three. They were certain that the shooter had been Mexican and male, but that was about it. The only teen who could ID the shooter was Scott Turner, though the way he arrived at his conclusion is suspect. According to Turner, Detective Deitch had shown him a binder full of photos called a photographic lineup. Turner was asked to ID the shooter and claims he was coached the entire time. When he pointed at a picture, Deitch would say things like, no, he's in jail already, it couldn't be him. When they arrived at a picture of 16-year-old Francisco Carrillo, who Turner recognized from around the neighborhood, Deitch agreed it could be him and stopped the exercise. Typically, the detective working the case would show the photographic lineup to all five witnesses the same night, without giving them the chance to speak with one another. 
That's to ensure they aren't able to accidentally persuade one another's memories. Instead, Deech waited months to show the lineup to the other four witnesses. By then, the young men knew who Turner had picked and fell in line with his story. Francisco Carrillo was arrested soon after, even though there was no physical evidence linking him to the crime. During Carrillo's trial, the five teenage witnesses all testified and all delivered inconsistent stories. In addition to misremembering the make, model, and color of the car, they also seemed unsure that Carrillo was even the man who pulled the trigger. The case was declared a mistrial after the jury deadlocked five to seven, with the majority voting for acquittal. But the district attorney moved to try Carrillo again, about six months later. And this time around, the witnesses had their stories straight. They identified Carrillo as the shooter confidently. They knew the color of the car, and the jury had no idea that this was Carrillo's second trial, nor did they know about the inconsistencies in the first trial. Carrillo himself maintained that on the night of the shooting, he was at home with his dad, who corroborated the story. He claimed he got home from school, made dinner, then did some homework while he and his dad watched TV. The prosecution alleged that nobody does their homework on a Friday night, so Carrillo must be lying. The prosecution also informed the jurors that legally, if someone is believed to be lying in one part of their testimony, they're allowed to disregard the entire testimony as false. Incredibly, this is what happened. And so the jury was left with nothing but five compelling eyewitness accounts that pointed to Carrillo as the shooter. They found him guilty. On the morning of Carrillo's sentencing, a man approached Carrillo's lawyer outside the courtroom. He introduced himself as Oscar Rodriguez. He claimed to have been involved in the shooting and knew Carrillo was innocent. The moment the hearing began, Carrillo's lawyer alerted the judge and asked him to allow Rodriguez to speak. But for whatever reason, the judge refused and went ahead with the proceedings. Carrillo was sentenced to two consecutive life terms. Francisco Carrillo would spend nearly 20 years in prison before the Innocence Project took on his case in 2009. They say that as they began reinvestigating the case, the LASD also got involved. By that point, the Linwood Sheriff's Station had been closed for years, and the Vikings had died out by the turn of the century. But Detective Deech still worked for the department, as did many of the men who were once part of the Vikings gang. The Sheriff's Department claimed to be reinvestigating Carrillo's case, but representatives from the Innocence Project believed they were only interested in covering up any wrongdoing. Meanwhile, all five of the witnesses who initially ID'd Carrillo admitted that they had been coached by Detective Deech and the prosecuting attorney. Daniel Sarpy's son even wrote a letter in support of Carrillo, admitting that he did not clearly see the face of his father's killer. Carrillo's petition was heard in March 2011. During his closing argument, the attorney for the LASD said that he did not believe the department had committed misconduct, but his final comment was the most shocking. 
He said that, as an officer of the court, he had an ethical and legal responsibility to ask the judge to grant Francisco Carrillo's petition. LASD's own lawyer believed that Carrillo should go free. Later in 2011, Carrillo filed a civil rights lawsuit against Deitch and the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. He was awarded $10.1 million, more than $500,000 for every year he had spent in jail. Currently, Detective Deitch is off the grid. There's little information on where he is or whether he's on payroll. But as far as we can tell, he hasn't been formally discharged from the Sheriff's Department. And just as one Viking member was outed, another was promoted. That same year, Paul Tanaka was appointed undersheriff, second in command to LA County's new sheriff, Lee Barker. Overnight, a Viking had become the second most powerful person in the world's largest sheriff's department. And, as was the case at Linwood, his tenure was rife with controversy. In 2012, a Blue Ribbon Commission would accuse Tanaka, his boss, and a few colleagues of allowing their deputies to beat and humiliate inmates at county jails, cover up deputy misconduct, and allow deputy gangs to run unchecked. It seemed as though the abusive, toxic culture he learned at Linwood followed him for the rest of his career. It brings to mind an old cliché you can change the law, but you can't change the people. The Little Devils may have disbanded by 1980, but the violent mentality that formed the gang didn't dissipate overnight. The Vikings are also gone. The Linwood Sheriff's Station closed in 1994, but every time one gang is disbanded, another seems to take its place. The current sheriff of LA County, Alex Villanueva, cut his teeth at the East LA Station. In 2016, he recommissioned the Fort Apache logo that had first been installed by the Little Devils. The community has complained that the seal is racist and demeaning, but this has evidently done little to change Villanueva's mind. The logo still stands. And as we'll discover, the Little Devils and the Vikings set a precedent for future deputy gangs, each increasingly violent. The next group to take up this mantle was stationed in Lenox, a neighborhood south of Inglewood. They were aptly named the Grim Reapers. Thanks for listening. Join us next week as we continue our deep dive into the deputy gangs of the LASD. We'll also unpack the history of sheriff culture to understand the outlaw mentality that allowed these gangs to evolve. You can find more episodes of Kingpins, Secret Societies, and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. Kingpins and Secret Societies are Spotify originals from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode was written by Erin Lan, with fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Julian Boireau, Brad Klein, and Brian Petrus. This episode stars Vanessa Richardson and Alastair Murden.
Don't forget to check out Our Love Story, the newest Spotify original from Parcast. Every Tuesday, discover the many pathways to love, as told by the actual couples who found them. Listen to Our Love Story free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.